So the Four Noble Truths are really the keystone of the Buddha's teachings and of the Buddha's realization on the night of his enlightenment. And um, he realizes that there's suffering, which is a little bit of a, like, you know, really? You know, like, we, we know that, there's suffering. But he, but he emphasizes it because he sees how important it is that to recognize suffering is the beginning of freedom. So there's the suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's the cessation or end of suffering, and then there's the path that leads to the end of suffering. And this becomes a cornerstone of the Buddhist teachings. Every, everything else is an extrapolation of that. Everything else is a, a, a commentary, a skillful means, an understanding, uh, a way of practicing that's related to those four truths. And uh, it's helpful to really think of them together, the four of them together, that the Buddha, uh, here, here's um, an, another way he emphasized it. He said he was talking to the monks and nuns and he picked up a handful of leaves. They're in the forest, right? He picks up a handful of leaves. He said, what's greater, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on the trees in the forest? What do you think they said? Duh, yeah, right. The leaves on the trees are a lot more. The leaves in your hand, they're a lot less. He says, he said, what I teach is like, what I know, what I've seen, what I've understood is like the leaves on the trees in the forest. But what I teach is like the leaves in my hand because this is what leads to freedom, that there is suffering, that there are it's the cause of suffering, that there is the end of suffering, and there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. And it was interesting on the retreat, last night on the retreat I was talking a lot about the mind, a little bit the nature of mind, and, uh, but also was having people do a little reflection about thought and about the process of thought and how much we take thought for granted. And by for granted, mean, I mean we believe it. We believe our thoughts. We actually think they're kind of real. And so I was, at, last night I said, or yeah, last night I was saying, um, where do your thoughts come from? That was the contemplation. Where do your thoughts come from? Anybody know? It's a very lively crowd tonight. <laughs> Pardon? Experience. Thoughts come from experience? The ego. The ego? Where is that? A trigger. Pardon? A trigger. Comes from a trigger. So something may trigger the thought, but where does the thought itself come from? The thoughts may be about our experiences, you know, of all kinds, but where do the thoughts themselves come from? 
our brain, really? <laughs> Where's that? In your direct experience. You want to look in your direct experience. Like right now, you're having some thoughts, right? Where are they coming from? Nowhere. Nowhere. That's, that may be a good answer. I don't know. I have no idea where thoughts come from personally. <laughs> they just, they're just there. And they're so, it's so obvious, we're so used to them that we take it for granted that they're mine, actually. There's a whole one, I was once reading about another spiritual tradition. I think it was Sri Aurobindo and his tradition. And he said his teacher had him sit down and watch the thoughts and see that the thoughts came from somewhere else. Right? Which is a whole different um, mythology than our current mythology, which is they're my thoughts and they come from my ego and that's what they are. So, and then the other question I ask, where do they come from, right? And here's the other one. You can do this just in your direct experience. Where do they go? <laughs> <laughs> Same place they come from, somebody said. But it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful question. Where do thoughts go? Are they piled up somewhere? You know? And I mean, you know, and of course the other obvious question is to just think about this. How many thoughts did you have today? Anybody want to guess how many? Number? Pardon? Thousands. Lots. Don't they seem real? Pardon? Sometimes, yeah. So as you're, as you're contemplating this right now, I'm definitely going off on a little side tangent here about thought, but um, what's here beside the thought. Pardon? The thinker. The thinker, where's that? Okay. Aware, who said that? Awareness, there's awareness here. Which is not exactly the same as thought. Anyhow, the point I was going to make, this is just a little, it's always fun to play with thought. Um, the point I was making was somebody wanted to talk to me today and came in and he was really a little distraught. And he was saying that the talk had impacted him, especially this piece about thought. He said, I never, I, he said, I can't believe how much suffering there is in my mind because of my thoughts and how much I'm lost in thought and that's a kind of it's not even this is not even just you know there's the negative thoughts we have and the harsh thoughts we have about ourselves or about others and the mean thoughts we have mostly to ourselves sometimes about others there's all that kind of thought, which is suffering. But he was saying just how much he's lost in that veil, that kind of uh, virtual world of thought. And he was, he was weeping a little and, and um, 
uh, and I was appreciating the insight. Remember, Vipassana is insight meditation. And one of the key insights is the insight into suffering. And the suffering is not simply the obvious, you know, war is suffering or hunger is suffering or, you know, the, the ways we divide one another and are, are uh, 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 cold or harsh to one another or mean or lie or those kind of obvious sufferings. But just that suffering of not being here fully, not being landed in a reality that's not virtual. in the presence of our uh, um, body and heart and mind rather than in this, in this incessant kind of interpreting and commentating and, and um, a, te- a whole template that we end up seeing the world through as if the template is real so we don't even see the world. And he was, he was feeling the actual suffering of that. And I was... I was appreciating it because he was having a, an insight, a deep insight. And the insight into suffering is one of the key uh, insights the Buddha had that night that led to the Four Noble Truths. He also had a very key, there's two other key insights that he had about the characteristic, about the, what are called the three characteristics of life which is that there is suffering, there's impermanence, that life is impermanent and everything is impermanent. Everything, our bodies, our relationships, our work, our um, iPhones, (laughs) our, you know, whatever it is, you know, our homes, our political, our politicians, our political systems. It's all impermanent. The world, the human life is characterized by this impermanence. And it's an important insight. And of course, it's it's a little bit like suffering. It's a little bit like everything. We know that. Nothing stays. But the level of understanding can deepen so that it's, you know, at first it's just a cognitive understanding. Okay, everything's impermanent. But the understanding can keep deepening and permeating, penetrating our body and our being so that it totally informs our understanding of reality. And then, of course, the third insight uh, that the Buddha had on the night of his enlightenment was the understanding of selflessness that the sense of self, that we, what we take to be ourself and what we take to be as a fixed entity, solid, ongoing, is not that. It's a set of conditions that have come together and a way of thinking overlaid on that 
that gives us some solid sense of, oh, I'm Eugene. And I want to be careful here because there's the relative truth, you know, I'm Eugene. If I go around saying I'm Sam, you know, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble, right? I'm, I'll get locked up. But, but the idea that Eugene is a fixed, static entity um, is not the understanding of selflessness. When the mindfulness practice and training deepens, one of the things that starts to happen is you get a direct experience of um, the various uh, sense experiences, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, thought, feeling, all just arising on their own, happening on their own. We tend to so quickly make them mine, me, I. But if you look carefully, there's nothing we can hold on to actually as I, me, or mine, except the idea I, me, and mine. And sometimes people get a little nervous about this selflessness thing, like it's a bad thing. But if it's true, it's already totally true anyways, and you're doing fine, so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about the fact you don't really have a self. Although it may be liberating to realize that understanding. It's definitely worth your investigation not to just take it for granted that you're an idea based on the past and based on history and based on what's happened to you. Those factors are all have their import, but you may be something, you, what, what's here is much more than any idea, any history, any conditioning, any belief. And it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. I've always found it fascinating and actually quite enjoyable when there are very deep experiences of not-self, no-self. It, it's, um, and I'm, uh, um, and the reason why, I per, uh, personally, that I've found that uh, enjoyable is because it felt so freeing, so freeing, and so obviously kind of true. It, and again, it's not like you go away. It's not some abstract void. It's almost like more. You're, it's it's much more like oh, you're here even more fully. You're not here. It's not a virtual here. It's an actual here. It's not a here based up on mental constructs about who we are, who we've been, or who we take ourselves to be. So, and, and, the, and there are many doorways to this 
insight. Just feel your body. You can just do mindfulness of the body and the breathing will take you to the insight on selflessness. Uh, a number of people I know had this insight in the walking meditation on retreats. One of my friends, Sylvia Borstein, she said, I can show you the exact spot when I realized there was no Sylvia Borstein. <laughs> and it's, it's such a, it's, it's, it's kind of wild. It's like, oh, you know, I'm personally, my own experience, first experience of this was literally my mind went, oh my God, there's nobody here. You know, and that, and it was, it was, it was crystal clear. Anyhow, these three characteristics, these three insights include the insight on suffering. And so it's very helpful to begin to, uh, and people don't often like to think of that as an insight because it's painful, suffering is difficult. Um, but the Buddha saw that it was turning away from suffering, turning away from the dis-ease or dissatisfaction or uh, uh, um, unsatisfactoriness that is a natural part of human life that caused suffering. So in, in Buddhism they'll say there's two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to less suffering. And the suffering that leads to less suffering is when we actually turn towards this truth, this characteristic, and face it squarely. And it goes against the stream of conventional wisdom, conventional guideline. Conventional wisdom says, do everything you can to get away from it, right? If you're getting older and you see that suffering, get some Botox or something. You know, get stuff to covers up, you know, put old people away where we don't see them, you know, clean up the body so it looks like they're still alive, which of course it never looks like, right, anyways, but, you know, instead of actually seeing the truth of our existence. And the truth is not, it's not actually, especially in Buddhism, it's not considered morbid. It's not, it's not bad, it's just, what's the truth? Because the truth is freeing, like it's said also in the Christian tradition, the truth will set you free. Definitely in the Buddhist tradition. We want to see what's the truth of human life, because then we can start to respond skillfully, and we can start to see what's the possibility for a human life, given its limitations. And it has limitations, like about a hundred years for sure just on that impermanence level, on that temporal level. Or the fact, the, the dukkha, there's so much ordinary dukkha. One of the ordinary, oh, excuse me, dukkha is a Pali word for suffering. And remember, it's, um, it's a very broad term dukkha. I like dukkha even much better than suffering. Because just the fact that Sometimes you come here and you listen to the Dharma talk and it's really boring. That's dukkha. 
right? <laughs> or maybe you're listening to a really good Dharma talk. I'm really on that night. It's really good. But you need to go to the bathroom and your bladder hurts. That's dukkha. So it's starting to recognize dukkha, both, like I said, the obvious gross war or killing or hatred or racism or the, you know, poverty or ignorance or, you know, illness and disease, those obvious dukkhas, but also the, the, just the ordinary dukkha, the ordinary dukkha of um, being separated from those we love sometimes. Right? Somebody goes away or somebody leaves us. Or, you know, we have children and we love them and they go away. Or we have parents and we love them and we go away. Or, although usually it's more like we have parents we don't love when we go away, we're happier. But it's sometimes the case. Or another ordinary dukkha. So there's the dukkha of being separated from those we love. There's the dukkha of being around those we don't love, right? That happens a lot. You know, there's somebody here and we, you know, we don't actually want to work with them or hang out with them, or, but here they are and here we are. That's a kind of suffering, a kind of dukkha. And the reason the insight, this first noble truth is so important is because it motivates us to consider where does freedom come from? Where does free, is there freedom from suffering? And if there is, how do we find it? And what, what, is, what is the Buddhist teaching given, the Buddha says both there is suffering and there's a cause of suffering and then there's freedom from suffering. And he's, the, the teaching, the Buddhist teaching and text and story is he realized that freedom. He imagined that there was a possibility for freedom and he didn't stop seeking until he found it. He was very dedicated, very devoted to freedom. So there's the first truth which is really the beginning of the path. I would, I would guess that 99% of the people here have come because of some flavor of dukkha. Whether it's dukkha about work or relationship or identity, or whether it's dukkha of feeling lonely or the dukkha of wanting community, you know, that there's some, some motivation or the uh, dukkha of something, you know, you've had this didn't work out or that didn't work out and so you were curious, well, what does Buddhism say? There's some kind of, e even the idea of growth, like I'm coming for self-growth, indicates something's not satisfied, which is another flavor of dukkha, dissatisfaction. Um, so it's the beginning of the path it also has another very important um, uh, benefit, seeing dukkha, is that it levels the playing field. It's a characteristic of human life, meaning all human life. Whether we like people or not, whether we know them personally or not, whether they're our friends or our foes, 
every human being suffers. And that is a, a, a direct truth. And so it, if we can start to open and see the suffering, our own and the suffering of others, it begins to open the door to compassion. And suffering is considered the gateway to compassion in Buddhism. That there is a way that the heart responds when it's open, when it's not uh, encrusted, when it's not, you know, hardened. And of course, the mindfulness practice itself, if you do it for any period, will start to open the heart. And then the heart, it said that the heart um, reverberates in the face of suffering, that it vibrates. And that vibration is the vibration of compassion. And it's a beautiful gift of turning towards suffering is that it starts to give us our heart's maturity, our heart's wisdom. And we start to see the world not as us and them, but as a world of beings who are suffering for various reasons. And it can be very, very incredibly helpful in working with the conflicts and difficulties of our world to be able to see the suffering of the people we're in conflict with. So the Buddha also, the second noble truth, he said there's a cause to suffering. And the cause is talked about a number of different ways. Craving, clinging, attachment, as Joe said. Um, um, I think it's important to understand that clinging or attachment comes in two forms. It means grasping or pushing away. Grasping something, trying to keep things that are impermanent, unstable, ultimately ungraspable, or pushing away what's here, denying, resisting, rejecting. That the, the first two truths are really describing the problem. That we deny suffering and then we act in ways that increase it. Or we act out of ignorance of what causes it. And so if you're looking for how, to, how we attach, um, the, the real mystery is that we think we can attach at all. Right? We actually can't. There's, there's nothing we can hold on to given the insight into impermanence. Anybody know anything they can hold on to? IPhone. Pardon? My iPhone. Your iPhone. Give me your iPhone. <laughs> okay. So why do we want to be free of suffering? Why do we want to be It's, it's, it's so valuable 
So let me just reassure you, to be free of suffering doesn't mean you'll be without pain. Okay, I just want to reassure you. (laughs) What it means more is that there's, um, uh, the suffering of the world won't go, is probably not going to go away. The aging of your body, I got news for you, it's going to get worse. It's going to get older. The fact that people don't stay, it's just, it's just how it is. The reason, but the Buddha pointed to a freedom that was possible. He didn't say there's just suffering. He said there's freedom. He's, you know, there, there's also freedom. And it's a very, it's considered... Um, some of my teachers talk about it and as the fourth instinct. There's the instinct towards the social instincts, towards community, and the sexual instinct towards intimacy, and there's the, the survival instinct towards life itself. And then there's the, what's sometimes called the enlightenment drive, which seems to have some innate reality for us as human beings that that this is part of our, our DNA in some way that we've been wired and you can just see it in yourself there's some orientation there's some idea that there's something out there whether you call it God or enlightenment there's something that human beings have sought since the beginning of time and my understanding is that that actually is an intuition we have that is true. And so that's why we seek freedom from suffering in the way I'm talking about it. doesn't mean the Buddha had a bad back, right? When he was older, he had to, this attendant had to wrap him up with straps and, you know, he, his back hurt him. But he was still totally free from suffering, Okay. You can work with that for a while. So, so the, the causes of suffering, um, uh, uh, maybe a simpler way to see it is what, how do we get out of an alignment with fundamental truth? Like the fundamental truth that everything is impermanent. We act as if certain things are permanent and that causes suffering. You know, uh, something bad is happening or difficult is happening and we pretend it's not happening, that adds to the suffering. You know, denial or repression or things like that. It just, if we're willing to look at the way things are, we have an opportunity to come into alignment, into harmony, if you will, with the way things are. And then we start to move into the third truth, into the freedom. But I want to say a little more about Joe's piece, about the attachment, and I want to say a little more about the meditation practice itself being a key tool, a key skillful means. You can't just do this. This is not a mechanical practice. You can't just say, 
I don't, you know, attachment is bad. I'm not going to be attached to anybody. Good luck. Doesn't work that way. It's good to have the cognitive understanding, but there's a whole habit, pattern, conditioning that is oriented towards being attached. And so we want to begin to meditate, to use our intelligence, to use our presence, to use our intuition to begin to unravel those patterns of attachment and holding and grasping and tightening and tensing and that whole belief system. Because it's, it's very deep. Some of it's conscious, but a lot of it's unconscious. You know, we really actually believe we are our bodies. That's a very deep attachment. And you could say, no, I'm not my body. No, I'm not. You know, and then if I was a Zen teacher, I'd like tweak your nose, right? <laughs> and you would, you would not feel like, oh, they, that was not my body. So, so it's, it's, not a, there's not, it's not simply a conceptual and mechanical understanding. That's not enough. It has to be an, a deep insight. And the insight is on the really what's often talked about is the intuitive level where we actually see that we're not our body. We see it, we, we feel it, we understand, oh, there's a whole conglomerate of consciousness and sense sensations and experiences and history and ideas that have created a certain pattern, a certain way of thinking. And that in the and this is why the immediate moment is so important. The further we go into the direct moment, into right now, if you just sit here for the next thirty days and just stay right in the moment, you will have a deep understanding of selflessness, of the fact that you're not exactly your body. That there's consciousness here, there is a physical form here. It's really good to take care of it. Buddha understood that. But that identification, that attachment, is simply a, a, a relative truth. It's not ultimate truth of who and what we are. And so the meditation practice, which teaches us how to begin to come into alignment with reality by staying present moment by moment and seeing things change, seeing thoughts you know, which feel so real, all of a sudden you can have the same thought and it, it's just a thought. It's not reality, it's not a, you know, it's just an idea. Or you can have these bodily sensations and then all of a sudden they dissolve. Well then what is that? You know, where you felt so tight and so tense and this is me and this is mine and all of a sudden it's gone. And a certain kind of disidentification happens, not a dissociation, it's not a dissociating, it's not a pushing away, it's staying totally present and letting reality reveal itself because reality is totally impermanent, is totally unfixed. There is no stasis in reality. It's ecstatic reality, actually. It's ecstatic. It's a good thing. We know that. We hear that word ecstatic. We think, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> and we can, we can start to experience it directly we are an expression of that ecstasis, of that we are, in, everything about us is impermanent. 
So the meditation practice helps us to have the insight that is liberating, that is freeing. And then we don't even have to let go. We don't do, the letting go is not a mechanical letting go, the letting go of attachment. No, it's actually, we're just seeing what the truth is and then it's just kind of obvious. And of course, there's deeper and deeper layers of this. I don't mean to say it's all gonna happen in your you know, first day-long meditation retreat. But you can get an inkling and you can get an insight anytime, anytime. And the third truth, which is that there's the end of suffering. And this is, um, um, the word the Buddha used is um, nibbana or nirvana, like the rock group. That, um, that there was um, and, and another way that he described nirvana, nirvana, is he called it the unconditioned. To begin to see what's here that's not based on conditions, not based on the past, not based on history, not based on ideas, not based on any condition. And he equated freedom with the unconditioned. And you've all had a taste of it at times. The Buddha said after he was enlightened, he was walking back and forth. He was doing some walking meditation. And he, he, um, he had this thought. He thought, I don't know if, he, he didn't know whether to teach or not. And he had this thought. He said, I, I don't know if I should teach. I don't know if people can get it because it's so subtle. He didn't say complex or difficult or comprehensive. He said it's because it's so subtle that it's difficult, that we don't actually pay attention to the experience of freedom, of not suffering, of the cessation of needing anything in a moment. And so one of the things that I would like to encourage you to do while I'm gone is pay attention, pay attention for the next five weeks to any moment when you're just here and there's no movement that you have to have anything or not have anything or be anything or not be anything. You're just here. And they're kind of very ordinary moments in some sense. And here, I'll give you a, a, a little help. There's a, a little treatise written by Ajahn Buddhadasa called Ordinary Nibbana. Or it's either Ordinary Nibbana or Everyday Nibbana. I think it's Everyday Nibbana. And you can go online and download it. And just read that if you want to know about freedom, about cessation of suffering, about Nibbana, Nirvana. And it's a, it's a, because he talks about how really people would go crazy if they didn't have some of this in their lives because the suffering would be too much. That's a little point, pointer. You could check it out if you're interested in freedom. If you're not, forget about it. <laughs>
And the fourth truth um, is that there's a path, that there's a way that the Buddha outlined. There's areas of human life, human endeavor, human use of our time, our bodies, our intelligence, our creativity, uh, our, our, um, uh, our voice, our words, our offerings to the world that there are different areas that he highlighted and said, pay attention in these areas. Start to understand what leads to freedom and what leads to suffering in these various ways, whether it's in terms of right understanding or uh, our intention and aspiration or it's our um, um, speech and action and livelihood and then of course in the contemplative realm about how to how to meditate how to how to uh, train our heart and mind through uh, effort and concentration and mindfulness to begin to perceive reality directly to begin to perceive reality directly and that's not just a metaphor that's not just a nice idea that is possible for us as human beings with the skills we have with the qualities we have of intelligence and and the senses that we have and we can mature our uh, uh, humanness to the level of a Buddha that is a possibility thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate